Our scripture reading is from Acts 10, 1 through 7. This can be found on page 918 in your pew Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one home as a gift. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion who was known in the, as the Italian cohort, a devout man of God who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly a vision of an angel of God come to him and say, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring the one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, and let me just add my welcome to MLNs. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a delight to have uh, each of you here with us this morning, whether this is your first time here at Christ Community or you've been coming for a long time. We're so glad uh, that you're here with us, and I'd like to begin our time of looking at the scriptures by praying and asking for uh, God's help in understanding and applying uh, his words in our lives. So let me do that now. Father in heaven, thank you that you... Uh, speak to us and you give us the, the gift of faith, not as a way of um, sort of blindly believing in any absence of evidence, but faith as a, as a means, as the way, the way that we know you and come to know you truly. So I pray now that we would be given that gift of faith uh, to know you as you are, that today we would hear your voice and that we would not harden our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, in 1962, a, a scholar named Thomas Kuhn uh, published a book that gave us a phrase uh, that you're probably sick of hearing if you're familiar with it, uh, especially if you've worked uh, in, the, in the worlds of marketing or business anytime in the last uh, 20 or so years, you, you're probably sick of hearing this phrase. And the phrase is paradigm shift. Um, but the book that Thomas Kuhn published back in 1962 didn't have anything to do with business or marketing. In fact, it probably could have used a little help from the marketing world. The, the book was called uh, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, not the most... Uh, catchy tighter. Uh, maybe if the folks over at BuzzFeed were writing it, they would have called it like, you'll never guess how science actually changes. Um, maybe it would have sold more copies if that had been the, the title of the book. But even though the phrase paradigm shift was, was so driven into the ground in the 1990s and early 2000s to the point, actually, if you, I was doing some research this week on this, a lot of contemporary communications manuals say do not use this phrase anymore. Um, Kuhn's idea is really important. Because the idea of a paradigm shift is, is this. Uh, Kuhn argued that science doesn't always move in sort of an ordered, steady, progressive march with one decision and discovery kind of, uh, you know, just incrementally leading to the next one, and then we kind of, science moves forward. As he looked back at the history uh, of science and how our understanding changed, he said, no, there's actually these moments, paradigm shifts is what he called them, where a dramatic new way, a new metaphor, a new discovery completely changes uh, sort of almost overnight how we think about something from a scientific 
perspective. So uh, think, for example, of the Copernican revolution, the shift from understanding the, the earth as the center of all things that get revolved around to now we understand, okay, the, the sun is the center which the planets revolve around. That didn't sort of come about just these like one little incremental discovery after another. It was a dramatic moment when this, when this shifted. So a paradigm shift in this true sense that Kuhn talks about it is a sudden and dramatic change in someone's framework for understanding reality. And this morning as we follow the story of Cornelius uh, that Emmeline read just a bit of us for already this morning in the New Testament book of Acts, we're actually going to witness a dramatic paradigm shift take place. And Christians have often used the language of conversion to talk about what it means to believe and follow Jesus. The idea that you are completely converted or transformed in your life to, to, from something else to now following Jesus is the core thing in your life. And, and we witness this happening again and again in the New Testament book of Acts. And we started looking at this book in the New Testament, this book of Acts, all the way back in, in January, actually, um, but then we took a break after Easter to study Paul's letter to the Galatian churches. We, we just wrapped that up uh, last week, Paul's letter to the Galatians. But now we're going to head back into, pick up the story of Acts and, and continue in that for the rest of the summer. So since it's been a few weeks, though, let me kind of do like a, a little bit of a series recap for the book of Acts. Kind of like, you know, when your favorite TV show comes out with a new season, they always do a kind of a, a previously on. So let's do a little previously on Acts. Um, here this morning, just to kind of catch us up on what's been happening in the book. We started off in chapter 10, but there's 10 chapters uh, ahead of this that we need to be reminded of. So um, Acts begins with the author, a guy named Luke, telling his readers that he's continuing the story of Jesus and his gospel, um, what we know from the, the gospel of Luke. So Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, also wrote one of the gospels, one of the four gospels we have, the gospel of, of Luke. Um, not surprisingly, that they called that. And so when Luke started writing his gospel, the gospel of Luke, he says, I'm, be, I'm telling you about the beginning of what Jesus began to do and teach. And so the implication then is that when we turn to the book of Acts, this is the continuation of what Jesus began to do and teach uh, now through his spirit in the context of the church and so the book of Acts opens with Jesus commissioning his closest followers to take the message of his life and death and resurrection and all that means for all the world and all people. He says, you're going to take that to Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria. Those are the surrounding kind of counties or countries around the city of Jerusalem. And then finally to the ends of the earth. And if you read through the book of Acts, you begin to see that Luke organizes the whole story of Acts around that framework, that geographical framework of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then finally the ends of the earth. And when we began our study back in January, what was happening primarily was focused in Jerusalem. That's where the disciples were gathered. That's where Jesus had been crucified and risen from the dead. And as we progressed along the story, we began to watch as the church spread out from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. We watched as the, the supernatural invaded normal life. That's one of the common themes all throughout the book of Acts is that you have God intervening in dramatic ways into the life of people as he's beginning this new movement, this new thing called the local church. 
So we watch as the Holy Spirit came down in this unique and fresh new way on the Jesus movement, these early followers of Jesus, and they spoke in these other human languages. Then the first time the gospel is is proclaimed to a large group, it happens in all these different languages simultaneously, which means that there's no single culture or language that has a particular place of prominence in Christianity. Already we're beginning to see hints that this thing is going to break down walls and cross boundaries. And then we watched the church swell from just a few hundred people to thousands of people in Jerusalem. And, and we saw how they were persecuted by the Jewish establishment in Jerusalem and how that persecution thrust them out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And we, and we even watched as one early church leader named Philip encountered uh, an, an Ethiopian, someone from a, another country, another background, and, and pointed him to Jesus. And then we concluded our study of Acts back right after Easter with the shocking and dramatic conversion of a person named Paul. Paul, also known as Saul, was a a zealous Jewish leader who was intent on destroying this Jesus movement. But again, in a moment of incredible, sort of supernatural, out-of-the-ordinary intervention, the resurrected Jesus encounters Paul on his journey to Damascus and completely turns his world upside down. Now the one who was seeking to destroy the church becomes one of its most fearless and bold leaders. And this morning, as we pick up the story just shortly after Paul's conversion, we're going to see another shocking, dramatic conversion. One that will change the course of the history of the church. And as so often is the case in Acts, the story starts out ordinary, but quickly becomes extraordinary as God intervenes in unexpected ways. So let me introduce you then to Cornelius. Luke tells us that Cornelius was a centurion. He was a military officer. He's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. And he's stationed in the city of Caesarea, which is part of Judea. And he's part of the Italian cohort. And a cohort in the Roman military was a person uh, who served in, in a larger unit. So a cohort would be made up of anywhere from 600 to 1,000 soldiers. Probably here, this far away from the capital of Rome with all the support troops, this probably was a unit of about 1,000 soldiers stationed in, in uh, Caesarea. And as a centurion, uh, Cornelius would have been over at least 100 troops. He would have been well-paid and well-respected as a military official, especially in the provincial capital that, was, that Caesarea was. Uh, he would have been a part of the socially prominent, wealthy elite of that city. Um, he had a lot of wealth, power, influence. But Luke also tells us something else about him. He says that Cornelius was a devout man, that he regularly prayed to God, and he gave generously to the people. So sort of picture an influential West Point graduate who, who t- takes a, a position in this city, you know, kind of away from home, but he attends religious services regularly. He's disciplined in his life, generous with his resources. He's socially engaged in seeking the good of the weak and the poor. This is Cornelius. He's an incredible guy. He's the kind of person that you'd, you'd want to meet at a party, that you, you wish that you could be this guy's neighbor. But that's not all. Luke tells us that he was a God-fearer. He uses this language of, of God-fearer which is a technical term that meant something very specific. It it meant that even though he wasn't a Jew, 
by biological heritage, he wasn't ethnically Jewish, um, that he was interested in and had even committed himself to the Jewish faith, but he had not converted fully to Judaism. That's what a God-fearer was, a a non-Jew who committed themselves to the way of Judaism, but without taking on, and this is a a key part here, that they, they, without taking on the dietary restrictions, um, and also, in particular, not submitting to circumcision. And so it's almost as if Cornelius is saying, I like this whole religion thing you got going. Uh, I'm going to run with it. I'm just not planning on altering my anatomy to be a part of it. Thanks. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to take that step. And so uh, he, we spent a whole series in, in Galatians looking at what does it really mean uh, to be a Christian? And, and one of the questions in Galatians was, do you have to become a Jew? Do you have to go through adopting circumcision and all these dietary restrictions and all that to become a Christian? Is that part of the path that you, in order to become a, a Christian, you have to become a Jew first? Or is it just about being a good person? Is that really what Christianity is about, just, just being a morally good person? Because Cornelius is that. He's a great person. But what we're going to see is that Christianity is not about just being a good person. That's not the point. It's not about being morally perfect. It's just about being a good person. It's about following and trusting the right person. More on that later. So as we continue in the story of Cornelius, this military official, Luke tells us that it's, it's 3 p.m., which was a set hour of prayer according to the Jewish tradition. So it's likely that Cornelius is about to go and, and pray if he's following this rhythm of life. And he goes and he gets ready to pray. And it's in that moment that the story goes from ordinary to extraordinary. An angel of God appears to Cornelius, calls him by name, and and Cornelius is terrified and asks, what is it, Lord? And the angel just gives him basically a simple message. He says, God knows about you, Cornelius. He cares about you. He has heard your prayers. He has seen how you give generously to the poor, and you have honored him in this. And now I want you to do something, the angel tells him. Send people to Joppa and ask them to find Peter, And oh, by the way, Peter is also known as Simon, and he's staying at a guy's house whose also name is Simon, who's a tanner. He works with leather. So just when you get there, you make sure you want Simon the Apostle, not Simon the Tanner. Get the right guy. So you make sure you got that. You want the Apostle, not the Tanner. Um, Go get him, send for him, and and bring him back here. And like that, the angel is gone. And so you can imagine Cornelius walking out of his room, scratching his head, trying to make sense of this. So he calls two of his servants and one of his soldiers uh, to come and, and send them to, to, to Joppa, where the angel said to go. And, and I just imagine, that had to be an interesting conversation, right? Your boss calls you in and says, uh, so I was, I was just talking to an angel a few minutes ago in the other room, and, uh, and he has a mission for us to go on. And you got to like, okay, these guys, they, Cornelius is in charge. We've got to do what he says. But I just wonder what those guys were talking about as they were ta- making the 31-mile day-long journey. To, I mean, has he, has he lost it? Uh, you know, has is, is this guy got all of his uh, mental faculties intact? But they, they set out on the journey. They head to Joppa. It takes them more than a, a day to complete because it's already 3 o'clock. And so they're still making their way to Joppa the next day. And then Luke picks up 
Peter's side of the story. So Peter, the apostle, follower of Jesus, who's staying at Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa, we start out his story again. It's ordinary, it's mundane. The text tells us that Peter is hungry. It's time for lunch. That's how this Peter story starts. And it says, while he's waiting for them to make food, to prepare lunch, Peter goes up onto the roof to, to just to wait for lunch to get ready. And while he's waiting for lunch to be made, daydreaming about what he's going to eat, all of a sudden he too has a vision, a trance. Except he doesn't see an angel. He sees this kind of like sheet, harp thing coming down out of the sky and it's filled with animals and birds and and reptiles. Uh, Look at verses 10 through 13. And he, Peter, became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air and a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. That's when you know you're hungry, right? When you start having visions of a sheet full of animals and voices from heaven telling you to kill and eat. But, But Peter doesn't want to do it. As hungry as he is, he immediately refuses. Listen to what he says in verse 14. And this is, you know, he recognizes that this is God speaking to him. He says, but Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Now, this is a little easier to understand with some history. So these these food laws, among other things, were the thing for the Jewish people. It's what set them apart. It's what set them apart. It's what defined their culture. Of course, even... Today, right, in in Jewish culture, the idea of keeping kosher is still a really significant thing. And in the book of of Maccabees, which is a a history of the Jewish people during the Greek occupation before the time of the New Testament, there's story after story of of Jews who, who would rather be tortured and killed rather than eat pork. And these were the Jewish heroes, those, those who stood up against the, the pagan oppressors, even to the point of death. These are the stories that Peter was told as a child, and, and they were supported and based in the Old Testament dietary laws. So this is a huge deal for Peter. It may not seem to us like, oh, this doesn't seem like God's actually asking that much of Peter. Just go, you know, have a bacon cheeseburger. But he really is, in ways that are almost probably impossible for us to understand, asking Peter to do something that he could hardly conceive of. And just like that, though, the, the sheet is pulled back up to heaven, and Peter finds himself back on the rooftop in Joppa, and he's confused. What in the world could this mean? But then he hears people yelling at the, at the gate to the house and, and he sees two Gentile servants and a Roman soldier standing there asking for him, saying, is there a guy named Simon Peter here? And we're asking for a friend. And then Peter hears the spirit say, rise and go with them. I sent them to you. No questions, just go. So Peter goes down and says, I'm Peter. Um, you know, what, what can I do for you? And the, the men retell everything that happened with Cornelius, and they, they end with an ask. So, and we, so we're kind of hoping that you would come to Caesarea with us, if you would, if you could. Um, 
Peter says, all right, I'll go with you. But again, they just got there. It's already uh, noon later in the day, so they can't make the journey all the way back that night. So Peter invites them in to spend the night at the house with him. And already you begin to see that Peter's starting to sense something new is happening. That God is doing something fresh. Because Peter is inviting these Gentiles into this home. Extending hospitality is just something that Jews would not do with Gentiles. This didn't typically happen. But Peter invites them in. The next day they get up and they go to Caesarea. Peter takes six guys with him from from Joppa. And they set out on the road. And by the time they get to Caesarea, back to Cornelius' house, there's a a big crowd that's gathered. I mean, already it's kind of a large group that's coming there to see Cornelius. There's Peter plus these six uh, people he brought with him, plus the three guys that Cornelius sends. So that's 10 people already. Plus, now the text tells us that it's all of Cornelius' family has gathered, his close friends. There's 50 or 60 people gathered in this home when Peter walks into the room. So you can imagine everyone's kind of milling about and talking, and then Peter walks in. And the first thing Cornelius does is he falls down on, on the ground and starts to worship Peter because he has no idea what's going on. The last time he, he heard an angel said to send this guy, he, maybe Peter's an angel, he doesn't know. He falls down and starts to worship Peter. And, and you know, it's so embarrassing and awkward for Peter. He's like, man, I'm just a fisherman from Galilee. Please get up off the ground. Don't worship me. And then everyone is just staring at Peter. So in the middle of the room, you had Cornelius on the ground, Peter kind of standing there stunned. He tells him to get up. Everyone's just staring there. And this is how Peter decides to break the tension in that moment. Verse 28, he says, Now you yourselves know, all of you Gentiles, how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of any other nation like you all. So not a great start. I mean, not, what he's saying is not untrue. Uh, but again, this is, this is Peter trying to get with this new thing that God's doing. For a Jew to whisk being around unlawful food and idol worship in a home, it was just too much for him. Hardly ever would a Jew enter the home of a Gentile. But again, Peter's starting to understand this vision. And so he continues, But God has shown me not to call any person uncommon or unclean. Don't miss that. Because Peter's beginning to see this wasn't just about unclean food. This is about who do we consider unclean people. And Peter sees that God does not make a distinction between Jew and Gentile as he once thought. But but he still has really no idea why he's here. Because look at verse 29. So he says, when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked you then why you sent for me. So Cornelius, you sent people here to my house to bring me to your house. So why did you send me? And and I love Cornelius' response. He tells the story uh, of the angel now for the third time, but he leaves out the I was terrified part. He doesn't say I was totally freaked out by the angel. He kind of polishes over that. And he ends by saying, we are here to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to say. I mean, you ever have a meeting at work where everyone sits down and you're just kind of staring at each other? And the question is like, after a minute, someone says, wait, like who, who called this meeting? And that's this moment, because Peter doesn't really know why he's in Cornelius' house, and Cornelius doesn't really know why Peter is in his house. Um, But we realize in this moment that God called this meeting. And so Peter starts. He just starts summarizing the gospel, starting in verse 34. And let me just kind of give you a quick summary of what Peter says. He basically says, uh, we live with Jesus, 
we ministered with him. His own people killed him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and we saw him and, and he told us to tell everybody about this as the Bible foretold and to tell people that in the name of Jesus, there's forgiveness of sins. And, and I summarize this because it's not even really a sermon. I mean, compared to what Peter did back in Acts chapter two, uh, this is really boring, this sermon. And it's not, like I said, it's not even really a sermon. It's just a summarizing of what he did when he was with Jesus. There's no call to action, no repent and believe. But even before Peter is done talking, God just intervenes. He interrupts. Because as Peter is still talking, the Holy Spirit fell on those who were listening to him. Verse 45, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, even on the non-Jews. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. So he doesn't even finish what he's saying and everyone there in the room receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter and his friends know this is the case because it's the same thing that happened to them back in Acts chapter 2. Now it's happening with even non-Jews. They're watching for the very first time Gentiles, the very first Gentiles ever to receive God's own presence in in their being, in this personal way. Nothing like this has ever happened before. They're astonished. And all Peter can do is state the obvious in verse 47 where he says, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who receive the Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And in this moment, this moment of Jews and this movement of Jews who who love Jesus, in this moment, that movement becomes something else. Because later in the story, and we just don't have time to cover it all this morning, but later on in chapter 11, the first church filled with both Jews and Gentiles is in a town called Antioch. And they're not called Jews anymore. They're called Christians. Because now you can't just talk about this Jesus Jesus movement as a sect of Judaism. And you also can't just call these these Gentiles, these non-Jews, just pagan Roman, uh, you know, worshipers of of the Roman pantheon of gods. There's something different. There's actually almost, it's almost like a new race, a new category of people have been created. Christians, those who follow Jesus. The first time ever in the history of the world that people are called Christians is in Antioch where you have Jews and Gentiles together. They needed new vocabulary to talk about what was happening. And from that moment, these Christians, one of them told another Gentile about Jesus and then they told someone and they told someone and they told someone and someone told you. And now you, even if you aren't a believer, you ended up here in a church in Kansas City 2,000 years later. Do you see what I mean? This moment entirely changed the course of the history of the church. But as amazing as that is, as incredible and as unexpected as that is, as as improbable as that is, it's actually not the primary thing I want us to see this morning. So here's actually the, the, the main question I want to ask today. And that was, who was converted in this story? Who changes in this story? Who adopts a radical new paradigm? 
And, and, and of course, on the face of it, Cornelius, right, he's the obvious answer. And, and it's not wrong. It's true. Cornelius needed to receive new life to, to, as Jesus states it in John chapter 3, he needed to be born again. Even though he's a good person, that isn't actually what Christianity is about. Because there's a big difference between seeking God and actually knowing God in the person of Jesus. There's a big difference between being sort of a spiritual, religious person and actually being an apprentice, a follower of Jesus who has received new life in him. Because Christianity is not about making good people a little better. Christianity is about taking people who are spiritually dead because of sin and making them spiritually alive in Christ because of forgiveness of sins offered through his life and death and resurrection. Maybe you're here this morning and that's, that's you. I've always thought about myself as basically a good person. I'm just trying to be a little bit better. That's why I've come to church. Maybe you've come to church your whole life. Being a Christian is not just about being a morally good person on the outside. It's about being transformed and being made new by Jesus from the inside out. But there's something more going on here. Because Peter, in a sense, gets converted also. He has a complete paradigm shift too. See, on that day, Cornelius was converted to Christ's gospel, but Peter was converted to Christ's heart. Peter understands the transformative way of what God is doing to break down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. And we have begun to see cracks in that wall all the way back with Philip's encounter with the Ethiopian back in Acts chapter 8. You see the cracks starting to appear. This line between Jew and Gentile is no longer going to hold. But here in Acts chapter 10, it's completely destroyed. God is doing something fresh, something new. In the Old Testament, with some, with, you know, there's some exceptions along the way. You get hints that God's going to eventually do something more. But in the Old Testament, basically, the borders of Israel are the borders of God's kingdom. But now God is revealing that with the coming of Jesus, the plan that was from the beginning with Abraham, that he was going to bless all nations and all people has finally now unfolded. And there is no longer any division between Jew and Gentile. That they are now one in Jesus. And and again, some of you here today, you're Cornelius. You're a good person. By... By all accounts, right? You, you obey the law, you pay your taxes, you, you give money to charity, you have a good job, a retirement account maybe. But you don't actually have Jesus. You're here because you want a spiritual top off or you feel like this is a place where good people go to do good things. And, and I commend you for that. That's great. But what you need to see here in this account is that Jesus doesn't just want you to be a better person. He wants you to be a new person. Born again. And he's pursuing you. And I hope that there are Peters in this room that he's sending your way to help you understand what God is doing in your life. 
But most of us here this morning, we're Peter. We love Jesus. We know the good news that it's Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on our behalf that gives us any hope of salvation at all. But there are things that God is asking of us. And we are saying, no way, God. No way. I've never touched an unclean thing in my life. I won't go there. I won't talk to that person. They don't look like me. They don't act like me. They don't vote like me. They don't think like me. Wait, they live in what part of town? What zip code? They go to that school district? Now, this kind of attitude with Peter, it's, at one level, it's, it's understandable, right? That if Peter is obeying the principles and laws of the Old Testament that God himself had put in place and was doing so as faithfully as he could, until God reveals in this moment here with an incredible vision out of heaven that God is doing something brand new. I mean, maybe you could say, Peter, you should have caught on to some of these, these glimpses earlier, but, but you get it. Like, Peter has lived his whole life this way, and this is the way that God, at one level, had commanded the Jews to live their, their lives. But us? especially most of us here who are Gentiles, we're not Jewish, ethnically Jewish people, we don't have any excuse. As Christians, we live in this new reality. And yet we still wrestle with putting divisions in place. Or, even more likely, it's not so much that we are putting divisions in place, it's that we're not actively working to remove the divisions that our culture has already put in place. And this is where I'm always so convicted that, I, you know, I think, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, a racist. I'm not trying to keep people who are different from me out of, out of the church or out of my life. But how actively am I working to break down the walls that are already in place in our culture? Do I just live according to the cultural norms and not cross the lines and barriers and boundaries that our city already has in place? I was thinking about this recently because we were on our family vacation and as we were traveling back, we were going to make a stop in Waco. So we were driving from Tucson to Waco, which is a long drive. So we, we stayed one night uh, in El Paso, Texas on the, on the drive. And El Paso, if you know, is a, it's a border town. It's a border town with Juarez, Mexico. And as we were driving into the city, you can actually look right over into Mexico from the interstate. You can see Mexico right there, the border crossing and the border checkpoints and all that. And while I like to think of myself as a very progressive, sort of enlightened person when it comes to these things, as I looked across the border from El Paso into Juarez, Mexico, I have to admit, my first thought wasn't, I wonder what life is like for my brothers and sisters in Christ who, who live here just over the border in Mexico. My first thought was, man, I hope our car doesn't get broken into tonight at the hotel. Because I know Juarez, it's got a lot of crime and violence and we're so close. And, and again, you could easily say, well, well, Bill, that's just normal. Of course, like we'd all worry about that. But as followers of Jesus, we're called to more than what our culture considers normal. We are called to have our first impulse be one of hospitality and welcome. 
to live from a place of love and not from fear, to, to know and love our neighbors across the street and across the globe. And actually one uh, easy next step in beginning to know our neighbors across the globe better is, is to join us on June 20th, where uh, myself and others who were a part of our trip to Kenya will be um, inviting you into just experiencing a little bit of what that trip was like and what we learned and what God is doing to, to break down barriers between tribes and languages and cultures in the context of, of Kenya. What we're learning about what that means for us here. You could, because here's the thing. Jesus was ripped apart on the cross so that we could be knit together in him. And Jesus prays in John chapter 17, right before he's going to the cross, that we as his followers would be one. And he says that the world will know that God has sent Jesus when they see our unity in him. Church, may we be the kind of people that cross boundaries, that break down walls, that become one in Jesus so that the war-watching world may know that God has indeed sent him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray in the name of Jesus that we would be made one in him. And you know the recesses, the corners of my own heart and life where I live out of fear, fear of those who are different, fear of, frankly, just leaving what's comfortable and easy or would you give us the courage as a congregation to confront those places of fear in our own lives and be willing to be uncomfortable, inconvenienced for the sake of others so that we might be the kind of community that is one in you. We pray this in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit given to us as a gift across racial, ethnic, economic, social lines. The Spirit is poured out on all who would call Jesus their Lord and Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.